So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode one of Potential Paradigms. And this is a show where I have deep conversations with individuals who are deeply thinking, feeling, and acting to answer the call of ushering in of a new age, an age of new paradigms. So, I welcome today my guest, a dear friend of mine, Alexander Bannock, who is a multidisciplinary artist and photographer. Alex speaks from a unique perspective after leaving a blossoming career in neurobiology research, and he has spent about eight years studying the nature of direct experience through meditation, psychedelics, somatic breathwork, and creative expression. He holds nature to be sacred and embodies mindful acts of simple living. Alex currently lives in southwest of Florida and can be found on the beach hiking out in the wetlands or advocating for clean water mental wellness, and human rights and liberties. Alex is uh, passionate about personal practice through the pandemic, psychedelics, ecology of the ocean, and the art of fishing, and how to bring people together in divided times. Uh, he's also passionate about raw food diet and breaking quarantine habits and anything else. Sorry, this was the official bios I was reading, and I, I hope I didn't do a bad a job at that. Uh, no, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for being here. As a matter of fact, it's it's quite fitting that you are the first guest on this podcast. And we'll see how it evolves. But, you know, you were the inspiration. And we had this conversation about a month and a half or so ago where I was driving to Joshua Tree. And I had all this expansive views from my car off the mountains. And uh, I felt very inspired to talk to you. And I don't remember what we talked about, but this was definitely one of the themes. I think we talked about writing and, and, and podcasting. So here we are. Thank you for, for inspiring me, my friend. Yeah. Thank you for manifesting. Well, we'll see. We'll see how, how this goes. But, you know, I think it's going to be going to be fun while it lasts. And I'm kind of excited to see how this evolves. I've just been very humbled and energized by the response I got from my friends and uh, people I, I thought would fit well with the topic of this podcast, as the interest that they showed. So anyways, coming back, maybe we can talk a little bit about, to begin with, the theme of this podcast, and because that goes so well with some of the, the topics that both of us are interested in. So potential paradigms, and I, I feel that we live in kind of an apocalyptic world, dystopia or apocalypse. And I choose the word apocalypse because it means a revelation of truth. And uh, what that means to me is that the false narratives that humanity or this current civilization has held and has used those narratives for a long time to, to create paradigms that are not sustainable, either be it ecology or human well-being, uh, you know, we keep hearing of global global climate change and uh, poverty and so many things, war, et cetera, et cetera. And now I feel like it's nothing new. It's just that things have become much more acute. So, so the potential paradigms just means yeah. as truth is being revealed, what is new that is going to come? And like many of us, and I would like you to speak to it as well. Yeah, I can't help but agree about the apocalyptic nature of at least the feeling of it all the civil unrest and pandemic and all of it combined is, um, and well, seems that we're experiencing a unique kind of political warfare too, with, uh, information 
information warfare. And yeah, it's a really quite difficult time, especially when it, when it coincides with climate change and perhaps the denial of all these changes happening altogether. It's been very, I don't know, to witness it, painful and disheartening at times. Wow. The challenges of life, you know, we, we have our practices, we have our outlooks, we have a way of living that, well, life keeps going even in the face of crises. And it's a very unique time. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it's definitely, definitely a unique time. And, uh, Probably this is true for everyone. At least I have not seen such a period before. So it's definitely unprecedented. What have been uh, some of the changes or things that have been calling to you? Some adjustments that you've made in the way that you live life or also what you would like to be different or as in terms of your actions? Yeah, well, I really embraced the quarantine period of early 2020. That was, it was a unique experience and it felt that the job was to stay informed and uh, stay safe. And I, I tend to do pretty well in isolation. So for me, it was, I don't know, kind of a free break in a way. And I got to just simply exist and observe and uh, maintain awareness and continue my own personal practices and grow certain areas that I can grow in isolation. And uh, since then, I mean, there's a lot of things I've, I don't know, I, I really appreciated during this time. I'm slowing down diff- at different stages. I, I definitely feel there's less consumerism going on. Yeah, and I, I think that's all a much needed break for the planet. I think um, a slowing down of humanity is a really, really beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like uh, the more humans slow down, it's um, people have been talking about these themes that the environment, the ecology seems to be recovering. The birds are happy. You get to see the whales more often. All, All this, everybody else seems to be happy. And some people are seeing the sunshine for the first time in their cities and and countries. It seems like everybody needed a break. And so, yeah, so maybe let's, I want to check with you on a theme that, that you've been involved with, and that is going out to the wetlands and nature. And, you know, as, as I've talked, this has always been very inspiring for me to see you getting more and more familiar with just being out in the wild. And I think you're, you're a wild character yourself as well. Seems like you took it to the next level during the pandemic. Oh yeah, I I've always enjoyed nature and to have just yet another reason to spend more time in nature was a bit of a dream come true for me. I mean, I, um there's a part of me that just loves exploring and just being out there and and also being close enough with nature to understand what life is there. And I mean not just see the landscape and see the trees, but to actually discover the wildlife there to actually you know come in relatively close contact with the animals that that live there and i i love that i absolutely love that so i'm always out there i bring a camera and i bring a drone i yeah it's (laughs) to me that's one of my favorite things to do it's like a primal activation you know we have our roots here on earth and before all this technology before this busy way of life this is it's closer to the way things used to be yeah, nature can be quite profound. And, you know, I 
I've myself been been wanting to to connect more and more, not as much as as, as you. So I've always found found that inspiring. Looking at your photos and maybe in the show notes, we can leave some of your handy photography work of the wetlands and some of your adventures. Is there any particular adventure that comes to your mind, uh, one or two that? Maybe you could describe. I remember you once uh, talking to me and you told me that you, once you got chased by a wild boar. Yeah. <laughs> and another time you you had mentioned some kind of a wild cat or some, an encounter with a wild cat. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Well, frequently where I live, right behind the house, I see bobcats fortunate enough to have preserved space nearby and they, they roam through the area. And so there's a lot of bobcats here. And so regularly I see bobcats and there are panthers as well. Their panthers are a little bit more elusive. Yeah, the wild boar, that situation was a little bit nerve wracking because even if you're making noise as you're hiking, uh, sometimes you can still sneak up on them. Sometimes they might be napping. They literally will fall asleep under a bush and you could just walk right up to them. In this case, that's exactly what I did. and. Yeah, when when you come face to face with a very large wild boar that's screaming, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of a wild boar scream from ten feet away before, but it's um it's kind of a blood curdling sound in person. It's a battle cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luckily, it ran in one direction; I ran in the other direction. Yeah, I guess it was as startled as you were. Yeah, no, I. That's quite fortunate. Quite fortunate. Luckily, I've never had to have any encounters closer than that. But yeah, on the flip side, though, I mean, just the other night I was fishing under the full moon and uh, I caught a rare species of shark. And it happened to be a relatively large one. It was, I don't know, maybe maybe 40 pounds. Maybe uh, it was almost between three, three and a half or four feet. And yeah, the interesting thing about the encounters with the ocean is um, everything eats everything and you never know what's going to take your bait. You just never, ever know. You never, ever know. It might be a small little fish. It might be a huge fish or it might be a shark. And yeah, to me, it's the, the lottery of, of being out there. It's um, what what's going to happen today? Who's going to show up? What character of of the earth is going to appear today? Wow, wow. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of people can say that uh, to have hunted a shark and to, uh, you know, face face a wild boar and all these things in a rather short period of time. So I I, I feel like you, you're quite the shark hunter now. There, there you know, it's really fascinating. I, I don't think people like to uh, understand how, how, how they're really everywhere. They're everywhere and uh, as the water temperature gets warmer, they're all spread out and they literally are everywhere. The small ones are everywhere. The big ones come out more at night, but they're everywhere and they're all around us. And it's pretty amazing. So, I mean, even just fishing for normal fish, you're, 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 going, you're going to catch a shark eventually if you fish a lot of salt water. And um, yeah, and they happen to be among the the most sporting catches out there. I mean, there's, there's nothing quite as thrilling as hooking up with something as powerful as a shark. 
I mean, there's other fish out there too, like like the tarpon is uh, they they call it the king, the silver king, and um, it's very very powerful, very fast, and it's very aggressive, and it'll leap at like six feet out of the water, and and if you do, if you're not skilled, there's absolutely no chance of of landing it. Sharks are actually a little bit easier than the tarpon. Uh, well, quite a bit easier, but they're very strong. And I don't know, it's it's just something very, very exhilarating to have such a powerful creature. And, you know, once you hook up with one, really the best thing you can do, carefully remove that hook and set it free again. You know, um, I think some people's intuition might be to just cut the line, but then you leave that hook in its mouth. And I mean, eventually it rusts out and, but it's, it's cleaner to actually bring that, that shark in and, and remove the hook and release it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It has a, has a much closer encounter. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I don't, I don't know how to describe it unless, unless you're out there and you witness it yourself. I mean, especially the, the bigger sharks, they, you don't, you just don't hook up with them during the day. It, they, they come out at night. And so to be out on the beach at night and catch something really powerful and really big, and I don't, it's just, it's just hey. something really special. There's, and to me, it's not just like my personal excitement, but to me, it's like something deep in our, our roots, our ancestry, you know, the, the human brain uh, is believed to have evolved starting very quickly when humans began fishing off the coast of Africa mm. 200,000 years ago. And uh, the omega-3 fatty acids uh, are what fueled that. And so to me, fishing is like, it's something built into the human experience, something fundamental. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely quite primal. And I, I don't have much experience with that. Well, I also wanted to say that it seems like uh, since you used the word, you know, getting getting together with these fish, maybe it's we need an app. People have these wild encounters. Oh, there are some, there are some fishing apps. That's like Facebook for fishing. Oh wow! Yeah, there's a couple of them. One of them's called Fish Brain. One of them's called Fish Angler. Yeah, they're they're gaining popularity, especially during the pandemic. Because yeah, no, it's true. Uh, especially down here in Florida. After the pandemic began and Florida never restricted fishing, there was always an acceptable, one of the acceptable things to leave your house for. And so fishing gear was flying off the shelves. Like you couldn't find a cast net anywhere in town. There was no boats left. Everyone bought all the used boats available. Like it's, it was amazing what happened. And there's just been a lot of fishing activity around here. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting Perhaps team in itself is with with the pandemic of of changes in in different things that people have gotten into. Like I was recently, for instance, hearing here in Joshua Tree, there have been a lot of people making these very unique Airbnbs, and you know, people mostly coming from LA. A lot of the people with a lot of wealth making making different things, and a lot of this uh, Airbnb kind of like places as well, which the locals aren't happy about. But that is that is one of the many themes during during the pandemic that um, perhaps was hard to predict before that. So it looks like nature, nature sports, and outdoors have gotten really uh, popular 
or revitalize yes. with with the pain, which which me makes sense, which make definitely makes sense. Yeah, and it's uh, to be in nature is very healing, so it does make sense to during um, a health crisis, a global health crisis, that people are spending time in nature. Yeah, and I just wanted to kind of highlight maybe for the audience we did mention we're not as part of the reason I wanted to talk to you about this is because you you're not just catching these. Um, fish you're actually releasing them back into the wild because it's we've had some water quality issues here that are questionable we've had red tide blooms and and i mean red tide's been going on for thousands of years we know that it's like in the fossil record and they do seem to start offshore and it's mysterious as to why we get these blooms but one thing's clear that we've never been dumping so much nutrient-rich fresh water from Lake Okeechobee down the Caloosahatchee River into the Gulf. That's never, ever happened before. It's gotten uh, worse and worse over time, and the red tide's gotten worse, and it seems to be linked to neurodegenerative diseases like ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. And yeah, there's something called bioaccumulation theory of Brevitoc. And it does seem to move up the food chain, but it's not well understood. Um, It seems that most fishermen I encounter, they seem to believe that the fish are safe. And I'm not convinced of that yet. In the meantime, I practice catch and release. I would like to see the healthiest ecosystem possible here. And I, I have enough food. I don't need to eat these fish. And so to me, it's being with nature and sharpening my skills. I would like to have the skill to catch fish wherever I go, if need be. And in saltwater, once you get the swing of it, if you have the, the skills to fish one location, you can learn any location, really. No, that's amazing. And I think maybe we can touch base on two two themes that you've been connecting on. One is perhaps the ecological things that you've been witnessing with the red tide but also maybe first we can we can talk a little bit about of course you know you 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 have mentioned that the thrill of being out there in the wild and these encounters and how they're very primal and one of the things in both of us being kind of like contemplative and spiritual seekers in a way using tools on how to get present and be in the moment and nature seems to really facilitate that and particularly in particular when you have these kind of encounters which i haven't had so many as you but i can i can only imagine how they they bring you in in out out of your thought into what's happening there and then because perhaps you have to yeah no it's absolutely true i mean it's um i mean i would call it like a i mean you're almost there's nothing else to do but to meditate through the experience um you know, when you're either in nature at with your awareness at its absolute peak, uh, listening to every little sound around you or out on the beach and keeping track of every single condition, changing condition, the wind, the water clarity, um, just just everything. And I mean, on any given day, the fish might be biting one bait or a different one, or they're feeding near the top of the water column or the bottom or, and it takes a great intuition to understand when the conditions are just right for certain types of anything. And so 
to just go out there and soak it all in and take in that awareness and be there for it and wait and be patient and to be ready right when the fish bites. That is absolutely a practice of, of presence. Absolutely. Fascinating. I mean, that, that's remarkable to, to have such a fun and engaging tool to, um, to train yourself and to transform your mind into something that can stay focused and present. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, ho- hopefully I can, I, as I said, I talked to you always and I was like, I got to head more in that direction because nature is, there's also a joy to be in nature. As you said, you know, healing and how can, and where else can you have all those elements of developing one pointedness, uh, focus, presence while at the same time enjoying it and healed by it. That's like, that's a win-win in, in many ways. I completely agree. Yeah, I was just thinking maybe we could we could wrap up the ecological thread first, which is what have you been seeing in, because uh, I know you're really passionate about what you've been seeing in the wetlands. And this, by the way, is in Florida. Maybe you could tell a little bit about the location you're seeing this. Yeah, so I'm in Fort Myers, which is right at the base of the Caloosahatchee River, where it empties into the Gulf. And from this point south, all the way down to the Everglades, has been strongly affected by red tide. And we see we see the literally the color change in the water. It will become red. I mean, if you take a glass, a clear glass, and hold it up to the light, it's, it's red. It's red water, literally. And there's fish kills. The fish die off, starting with the fish that eat algae, like mullet. Mullet eat algae, and then catfish as well, because they feed off the bottom. And it seems like a lot of it appears that this algae settles in the bottom and the catfish are consuming it along with whatever else they're eating. So there's some species like the canaries and the coal mine that go first. And then as the red tide persists, it begins affecting other organisms and um, especially filter feeders and crabs and anything that eats crabs is going to be affected by it. A lot of fish are migratory and they come through areas and they, they know better than to hang out in bad water. But off, I mean, when it's really bad, even the smartest, smartest sea creatures are affected. For example, a couple of years ago, we saw die-offs of dolphins. Wow. We've, yeah, we've seen die-offs of sea turtles and large deep-dwelling fish like grouper. We've seen now manatees. Manatees don't seem to be affected the same way other fish are. Most of the fish, basically, they end up losing oxygen and dying because they basically just aren't respirating. But the manatees, what's happened with them is all this nutrient-rich water and the color change of the water has killed off the seagrass at the bottom of the ocean and the bottom of the river. And there's no, there's no grass for the manatees to eat. And they've gotten skinny and now we're just seeing them wash up on the shores. There's dead manatees everywhere. It's kind of hard to believe that I just ran into a fisherman the other day on the beach that claimed he was in marine construction and red tide is the hoax and he doesn't believe in it and he's on the water all the time. It's not as bad as people say it is, but I don't know. I've seen all these animals dead with my own eyes. I've seen a 500-pound grouper wash up on the beach dead. I've seen dead sea turtles. I haven't seen the dolphins firsthand, but I've seen the reports of them, and I know where they came up. 
I know the beaches personally. I've seen the mullet and the catfish, and I've seen all the other species that end up with them in smaller numbers. In 2018, when I first got here, it was so bad that you couldn't even really breathe outside. I mean, even driving a car with your the air set to recirculate, it was like noxious gas. You, you, you're coughing and it like will make your eyes burn and water. And it's like one of the most toxic things you can imagine. And as far as the eye can see will be dead fish everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And yeah, it's, it's quite gut-wrenching actually. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds uh, quite serious. And so as you were saying, is the, the root cause of that is the nutrient-dense freshwater that's being dumped or is it also? Yes, yes, all of these things. There's some denial going on as to what the role of, of humans has been in this, but clearly it is a man-made or a, a man-exaggerated problem, I should say. Because uh, a long time ago, the water used to run from the Lake Okeechobee area straight south into the Everglades. And over time, humans, the last 100 years or so, they dredged canals through all of Florida and drain all the swampland so that they could use it for ranching. Originally, it was ranching, but now those ranches are being sold off and there's developments being built and other types of agriculture and it's being farmed heavily, or it's turned into golf courses where they're using a lot of fertilizers, things of that nature. The water is no longer flowing to the Everglades, so it's collecting in Lake Okeechobee, but they have an old dam system, and they have to manage the water level. So come the rain season during the summer, the rain comes heavy, and they have to keep discharging in order to maintain the level of the lake to prevent uh great disaster with the dam and they just keep dumping it into the Clusahatchee River and they dump it in when they have to as well they dump it east as well but most of it comes comes west on the Clusahatchee River now and it's really unfortunate they'll dump up to 50,000 gallons per second i mean that's that's a lot of water that's a lot of water and yeah they have they've begun developing some plans to correct this starting with some other holding facilities so they can lower the lake level and move it to another area. But it's only a partial solution, and they've done nothing to improve the water quality. It's still going to grow algae in just a new location. Algae in the river or in another holding area is no better than algae in the ocean. Yeah. Doesn't the river actually end up eventually leading uh, to the ocean? Yes. Yes, it, it does. Yeah, so... Ideally, a lot of that water would go back to the Everglades, and there's actually been problems in the Everglades because they've taken away so much of the water over the years. So that would be good to send that water back there. But meanwhile, we haven't seen much action on this problem because the trigger for what actually triggers the bloom of red tide and the life cycle of the red tide we just don't understand yet. There's the science is still young. We just we just don't know. And so, you know, no one can really point like a finger at exactly what the cause is when the red tide arises and how long it's going to be there for and how devastating it's going to be this time. No one has any idea. It's really just guessing. But I think that one thing that that is rather obvious with a lot of these problems that we're seeing today 
you know, even with the, with the virus, you know, coronavirus and its variants and such being associated with the with the changes in the ecosystem and the ecology. So although the direct reasons might never be known or might be known, we do know what kind of behaviors are stressing out the ecosystems or very abnormal to how things are. And I think you have, you've just yeah. highlighted a number of those from the golf courses to the nutrient-rich water to a number of other things that are definitely putting a lot of strain and stress on how things used to be. And yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, it's, it's amazing to think. I mean, as a, as a fishery, as a place where you can go fishing, Florida is an incredible place, but to imagine what it must have been like a hundred years ago is like unthinkable. It's just unthinkable. I mean, the numbers of fish have been greatly reduced, greatly reduced. And I don't know it, it, we've definitely changed the yeah. oceans. We've definitely changed the ecology and we've, oh, it's, it, the impacts are undeniable. One of the theme connecting it to our conversation and your observations of what's happening down in Florida is this desire that I've had or in my spiritual journey over the last five, six years, becoming more and more articulate is at some point I realized through different experiences and through my study that the world is alive, that the plants are alive, the trees that I see that they are fixed are not, are not fixed. And there are very many ways to study how that is not the case. Of course, even at the scientific level, we know that the trees are our external lungs. So our lungs are not just in the body, they're outside. So what we're breathing, they're giving out. What we're giving out, they're breathing. So it's, it's, it's a perfect symbiotic relationship. Perhaps it was at the advent of colonialism. It just became that you're extracting from not just the earth, but other cultures, you know, mm. indigenous people. You just come and it is okay to, to take away, rape, pillage. All those things are just fine in this way or paradigm of seeing, which is, I feel like we're just cropping up the results of that way of looking at the world as dead and inanimate. Mm -hmm. And now I think that the new paradigms are actually, even our conversation is about reversing the, the sacredness and aliveness of yes. everything. So yeah, please say something to that if you like. Yeah. I mean, when you and I met, we met casually through the psychedelic community and you were hosting your own events at the time, the Hacking Consciousness events. And I was soaking up everything there was I could find in the psychedelic community and surrounding healing community, all plant medicines, all other meditation and all the, the yoga community. And I, I was ready to take it all in. Uh, that was generally my reaction to the experience I had when I woke up from a near-death experience. Yeah. Perhaps, you know, maybe a little bit for the listeners that the near-death experience is when you or pronounced dead because of cardiac arrest or some other reason. Uh, but yet these people, because they come back because of cardiac resuscitation or some other means to which, you know, their brain waves are reactivated and they come out of this uh, comatose-like um, situation or experience, they have a very rich story to tell. Mm -hmm. And so they're having this rich experience while they're very much to the outside world or very much dead. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Pretty much almost, I kind of almost identical to what you just described. I mean, what led up to it was, well, in hindsight, a realization that everything I had done up to that point was purely an egoic endeavor. And 
little by little after my near-death experience that had become revealed to me that I really needed to let go of all of those identities that I had built up and was holding on to so strongly. And um, that was just, in a way, like the beginning of a new journey. But it had opened up, just like you said, it was my experience was rich and deeply meaningful to me. And, you know, in the scientific viewpoint, when brain activity stops, consciousness stops. But what I experienced was a continuation of consciousness through this difficult ordeal and waking back up and coming back into my body again. And literally, it was just like that. I mean, literally, when I woke up, I almost couldn't move my muscles. And um, I had to almost learn how to use my body again. It was really a strange experience and very quite powerful. And not to cut you off, but I want maybe a little bit more about uh, what happened during that period of, I don't know if you want to share how you, how you perhaps got there and while you were in that particular state. I mean, I would be very curious to hear what, was there actually an experience uh, while you were there? Because as you're sharing, people would claim that consciousness or awareness during this time of death is, is gone. Yeah. Well, I got there by my own actions. It was really no one else's fault but my own. But yeah, I'd become very depressed and despondent with my situation in life. And I chose to check out and I took, I gave it an honest go. And the results were shocking because I didn't go. I continued through this experience. And I remember seeing my world drift away from me and I had this feeling of none of it matters anymore. And I felt liberated. In fact, it, it was actually quite a wonderful feeling once I had let go of my body and my earthly attachments and all the things that I was worried about and uh, completely stressed about were immediately gone. And then, I, then it went into a darker place, uh, a place, I guess, a place in between. You could call it a bardo. I don't know what else to call it. A bardo, bardo's a, the best description I can come up with. But yeah, there were soulful entities there. I mean, I again, it's a personal description of how I, what exactly that was. But the, it was almost like a meeting. And then in this meeting, it was agreed upon that my time was not up yet. And then. In that moment, when that message was received by me, once I, I was like, like, it was a grim message. Like, I, like, no, I don't want to go back. I, I, I came this far, but no, that your time isn't up yet. And, and that's when I began to wake up from a coma. And, and I was, yeah, I, I, I began to regain my senses and using my hands, I began pulling IVs out of my arms and pulling the ventilator out of my mouth and, I had to be strapped down and it was a few days later that I was able to walk around and be totally coherent and functional again. But yeah. And then, and then just a couple more days after that, they're like, yep, okay, go back to your life now. And, and I did. And, uh, but I, it wasn't my, I wasn't motivated the same way anymore. 
now I had new questions about life and uh, I had been shown something like behind the scenes, you know, something that you're not normally privy to see. And, and I mean, I was working in the field of neuroscience, so this seems so central and pivotal to my world. And up to that point, I had a more solipsistic viewpoint, a more agnostic viewpoint. I was always curious about all the big questions and mysteries of life, but they were always held at an at a distance. And, you know, I was safely surrounded by other scientists who held the same views. And but yeah, little by little, I just felt like I didn't really belong there anymore. And, you know, it's a tough field to be working in if your heart's not in it. And so it kind of set me adrift onto a different journey altogether. And yeah, that's when I stumbled into art, meeting other artists and being encouraged to try art and um, falling in love with that, the creative expression and learning about things about myself that I'd never, never tapped into before. I, I, and through psychedelic healing work, I really learned to love life all over again, to be to wondrously inspired and to see the magic and the beauty and the mystery and every single moment of the day. Um, that was altogether quite a gift, I would have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, this this is this is like fascinating stuff and I, I'm fascinated rehearing it because it's such a powerful theme as I was perhaps almost five years ago when, uh, when we met and we had this first conversation. So maybe I want to go a little bit back. Uh, I think you, you were talking about this pivotal pivotal moment. So you, this experience for you, it, it lasted a, a little bit. I mean, usually the near-death experiences, I don't know. I, I have, you know, right now, if you go to pubmed.com, P-U-B-M-E-D.com, which is a site of collection of scientific publications in the medical arena. And if you look, type in NDE or near-death experience, the last I checked a couple of years ago, there were about 4,000 publications, which is a lot on a certain theme or topic, because this has been a recent theme that people study. So just for the, for the audience, you can go to pubmed.com, which is a medical publications, and you can search this theme. But what I wanted to ask is, yours seems to be an unusual case in that the duration was quite a bit, actually. It was a few days, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not just somebody being resuscitated out of a cardiac arrest for 15 minutes. Even though people do have these pronounced, profound experiences, which are also parallel with psychedelics, something that you had mentioned, where the sense of time and space and other things can either go away or can be very different than what we perceive here. Let's call it, for the sake of conversation, the human realm or the earthly realm. So maybe you can share something if you have about the duration of this and how you experienced. I know that you said that some of that was quite uplifting in the sense that the reasons why you had decided to check that heaviness and unhappiness uh, was lifted away. Uh, but then you also said that there was another part of it what, which was not very pleasant. Yeah, it did become very hard. Waking up again was very hard. It was possibly, well, really without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever been through. And and that's even comparing it to, uh, I've had a kidney stone before, which was very painful. I've broken bones. You know, I've been under anesthesia, but waking up from this was definitely, definitely the hardest thing I've 
ever experienced. Impossibly hard. Yeah, so I was pronounced dead. They couldn't measure a heartbeat and I wasn't breathing. And they begun forcing air into my lungs and working to revive me. But I remained in a coma for another six days. I was on a ventilator that whole time, but I woke up on my own. When I woke up, I'd taken a combination of things I had, and uh, one of them was anticholinergic. It was hyoscyamine, which is a cousin of at, And in that dose, it caused on the wake up half of it a mild delirium state along with a disconnection from my muscles. The nerve impulse control of the muscles is just not the same. And uh, yeah, it was very, very difficult. It felt like my body weighed a thousand pounds, you know, like you just, uh, you know, you know how to move your arm, but it just is like, it just won't move. It's just so weak and yeah, but that combined with a hole in the in the normal functioning memory and the mild delirium, I literally didn't know if I was in the future or if I was in outer space on some kind of alien technology. The object recognition was not really there. So everything I looked at looked like incomprehensible technology. I just did not recognize. Yeah, it la- that, that effect lasted, I don't know, maybe between 24 hours and 48 hours. You were like almost like a child relearning. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really, really strange experience. Very humbling, very humbling experience. Right, right. No, no, fascinating, especially the, you know, um, let me ask you this. What I'm curious about is, had you had any experiences before this particular pivotal moment that had ever given you a glimpse that there was much more beyond? And maybe I'm trying to connect it with you saying that, oh, I experienced this tremendous lightness because your human role was so tight before this, you know, rebirth, so to speak, uh, that you had and being able to take it out of it. I, you know, in my mind, it was, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I was taking a one-way ticket to go see what was going to happen. Yes. Yes. And that was, it was a terrifying leap. I mean, there's been a lot of things that are scary to do in life, but yeah, that one, that one was, was quite the limit, I think. No, this is, this is fascinating for me to hear because, and, and maybe we're rehaving this conversation after many years. I don't know what, how we talked about it. Uh, we could go on this for, for a long time, but maybe we'll have to do a, we could even have a separate uh, podcast. Well, just, yeah. But one of the things is, um, I don't know, I have not studied the area of quote unquote, you know, suicide or checking out. But what, you know, I know a certain group of people called terrorists and uh, who would blow themselves up for a particular religious ideology, uh, you know, because they had been promised to heaven and uh, virgins and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that, you know, since they were, they were kids. And so that, that, it always baffles me that they put their life at stake for a belief. Um, And I don't know how the, you know, I'm not a, psychologist or I haven't studied this, but what you were saying is, is a little different because what you were saying is you kind of had this openness, uh, towards the unknown and you were taking a pretty big risk to verify something that you did not know. Mm -hmm. You were essentially putting your life at stake and it was not a belief. There was a kind of an openness. 
It's true. It's true when you say it that way. I mean, looking back on my experience and the memory of it, and I, I felt that I had come to a sort of dead end because between all many circumstances that all came to a head at once, I felt like there just the chance for resolving all of them just was so hard and so unthinkable. And I was, and so I felt so out of energy and, and so tired and just like I, yeah, there wasn't really another choice, but I was willing to go into a deeper aspect of life. And, um, I, I have, I did, I did have a couple strong psychedelic experiences early in life when I was a teenager and they did give me glimpses. I wasn't ready for glimpses of something beyond and they distorted reality so far that it became clear that the nature of this reality is in fact almost arbitrary. You know, it could be anything. And the collective unconscious could just be a great echo chamber. We're all just walking around repeating things like, you know, the the nature of like what is actually original came into my mind very, very early in life. I literally had come to the conclusion that we're all just repeating each other and we're all just sharing ideas and no one's ideas are original. And <laughs> and. I just weird ideas like that. And, but then connected to a greater reality that we just can't understand through our normal senses. Um, yeah, I, I definitely was open to something beyond, beyond, beyond the consensus reality. Yeah. Yeah. No, as the Sufis say, mashallah, which means God did it in a good way. It's like, how beautiful. Yeah. When something too beautiful happens, the Sufis blame it on God. Yeah. Yeah. And the story that we are, you are sharing, that your life was transformed by honoring that experience. You didn't even have a choice, perhaps, because it was such mm, a yeah. profound experience. Yeah, it's um, true. Perhaps that your openness that we touched on earlier on, I think, was a big reason that you had a certain kind of experience in the spiritual journey, in psychedelics and life in general, that if you do not have the openness, curiosity, or questioning, the true nature of life stays hidden. And it right. it rarely does try to shock you when you are even asking a question. Yeah. There's no, there's no denying it. Some people are just hit upside the head with uh, a great surprise. But, but yeah, I think for most people, if they're not asking deep questions, they simply will not be given deep answers. And everything is hidden and everything seems superficial and that's all there is to it. People have very deep reactions to this. And I think rightly so, because as you were talking about, I don't think there is any easy way to come into terms with your own non-existence and the fact that you will have to think for yourself facing the unknown. I think if you have a culture that, that honors that openness as past civilizations, indigenous cultures have done to a lot of degree, I think it can be easy, but nonetheless, this is a warrior's path. But yeah, no, I I completely agree. I understand it's a very hard path for people, especially when it means giving up ideas that have been handed down generation after generation after generation. And I mean, how, how could you, I don't know, it's, you absolutely have to have a warrior spirit in order to embrace something as big as the total mystery. One of the questions I had about your NDE was, 
your NDE experience from what you have described does not seem, there seem to be certain templates and categories. Again, I'm not an expert, but definitely one of the templates is very Christian uh, theme of seeing a light, having visitation with uh, your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, is not just among Christians. It's a theme that's present also in, in other cultures and civilizations. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly in Christianity, I think it's mostly immediate. But anyway, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think that your NDE classifies in a particular kind of template or theme that multiple people have had? I've heard other NDEs, NDE stories, and I can relate to them. I definitely choose my own words based on considering my audience, and that plays a role. And I would have to say that the experience overall was, I mean, quite weird beyond description. and. In itself, it requires creativity in order to describe it. But, you know, uh, there's so many, there's so many religious traditions that are relatable to my experience, not just Christianity, not just Native culture, not just the East, not just something more universal, something fundamental to value all of those stories now. They're really just using different words and different weaving different ancestry songs in to make a new story of about their experience and i mean the attempt to describe the indescribable i mean what what else do you have to lean on but the the words that have come before us i've heard this co i i think it comes from andrew volchek who is a dream yoga master spiritual teacher it might have even come from somewhere where he heard it, but it's the map is not the territory. Yeah. And all the religions and perhaps religion is not best words for all spiritual traditions. Mystical traditions are maps. And they point to the undescribable, as you say, in their right. own really beautiful ways from where they originated and prophets and sages who came to pass the legacy often. So... Let's get back to uh, a conversation that you and I had had maybe a little over a week ago, and we can connect this in the show notes as well. So I had uh, heard on the request of a friend, not so much a request, a sharing of a friend of an interview between Sam Harris and uh, Rupert Spira. And for those of you, both of them are pretty well known, but for those of you who don't know, Sam Harris, at least I remember him from five, six years ago. I used to be in his kind of quote unquote camp with Sam Harris and at one point with Richard Dawkins and the like, who were atheists, I'm sure he has come to transform himself as well, like all of us. And uh, part of his openness was because of his own interest in meditative and contemplative practices as far as I know. And I think that he has also has had his own touch with uh, psychedelic experiences as well. Mm-hmm. And the other interview quickly was Rupert Spira, who is a, a spiritual teacher and a student of actually one of my spiritual teachers, Francis Lucille, that I've studied with, um, have been very fortunate to study with. And so they had this discussion to kind of sum it up. They had a very good conversation, but one of the point of difference between the two is that Rupert, and I think that includes both of us as well from our conversation, is that there is a deeper reality and that that reality is real and that What Rupert was saying was that our very own ordinary awareness is very much at the foundation. As we explore this, that awareness is at the foundation of reality. As a matter of fact, 
It's primary. Yeah, it's primary. Or to say that reality, what is real, is our awareness. And yeah. everything is appearing in it and not the other way around, which in a lot of science, I think where Sam was not agreeing with that fully. And he said that maybe that's a possibility we don't know, but he was also on the camp that it could be possible that, and I might be wrong because I heard this 10 days ago, that, that matter itself, whatever that is, that something outside of our awareness can actually be primary and that it builds it. You know, it's like these molecules that come together and H2O comes and makes water. So there is like a equivalent of H2O that creates our awareness or my experience of existence. And Rupert's comeback to that was, I think, was that how do you know that? Because, you know, as I was saying, was all of our instruments, all of our technology is within our awareness. I am the one who sees that. So how, how why should I assume the existence of something that I can never verify? Yes. Yeah, no. I mean, to speak to this, the first thing that comes to mind is something I believe Alan Watts said is that atheism is a form of piousness. And it is uh, to, to be preaching atheistic ideas is spiritual an idea as anything, really. Yeah, I, I just want to say I heard someone say that recently that I think it was Igor Kufayev, a spiritual teacher, and he said that atheism is probably the most intimate relationship with God. It's full-on denial of your own self. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's very intense. Right. No, I, I get it, and I, I see it that way. I see the piousness and atheism. I mean, yeah, I, when the mystery runs so deep. The question I had for you, Alex, was, and, and maybe you're going into this, is you had an experience of NDE. When Sam Harris was talking to Rupert Spira, he gave the example of anesthesia. And he said that people who were given anesthesia, because he himself is a, a neurobiologist or neurotherapist, something maybe neuroscientist, that people have kind of like this blackout. They don't uh, have any recollection of what happened during that time. Right. And so I really wanted to spend a little bit of time here to connect with that because that's a theme that's very important to me. I think that yeah. most don't think about that. Just to kind of have this clarity that I would say it's not just anesthesia. I would say deep sleep, distraction, somebody knocking you with a two by four on your head and anesthesia and near-death experience. All these are actually the same experience. So it's not that you have to take anesthesia or have to have an intense experience of an NDE. Right. Yeah, and to different intensities and different degrees, yes. During my near-death experience, I had no sense of time whatsoever, and there was no measurable brain activity whatsoever. They actually thought I might be a vegetable for the rest of my life if I were to survive. And it was quite shocking that everything came back to normal immediately afterwards. But yeah, I did lose sense of time. And there is a spottiness and memory of events coming out of it. But there was a lucidity in the experience beyond, you know, like, strangely enough, it was confirmed that I had no brain activity, yet I had an experience. And that was in 2011. I actually, Sam Harris came to UCSD in, I believe it was 2010, maybe in 2009. But he came there. University of California, San Diego, just for Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> UC San Diego. And I I heard him speak and I got introduced to him at that time. I had friends that really liked him and he had 
progressive ideas. They were really smart. He'd written books. He was very already very popular and well-published. And I actually found his work to be a little confusing because I listened and listened and listened. And, and, and he had all these interesting things to talk about. He'd talk about retreats and he would talk about a little bit of like psychedelic stuff, not really revealing too much of his own personal experiences, but enough that you could tell that he's been immersed in it. And um, he would really touch upon ideas, but I kind of felt that I was listening with an open heart. And every time I got invested in what he had to share, I had the rug pulled out from underneath me because it was an incomplete idea or it stopped with an idea that he could sell books on, or I don't know. I, I, I can't say what his motivations are exactly, or maybe it's the prestige of his position or his status and culture or whatever it is. I, I'm not here to judge him. And I don't mean to offend all my friends that really love his work. There's, I know so many people that like, they're like, oh, do you know Sam Harris? And they like want to give me his book or, and I've listened to all his, a lot of podcasts, his early podcasts when he, he was on other podcasts and yeah, really interesting guy with a lot to share. But in my feeling, he, he kind of misses key points where he doesn't fully embrace the mystery. And instead, he's embracing the piousness of atheism, but under the cloak of spiritual idealism. It's a kind of an interesting mix. It's a, a one of the more unique mixes out there. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, I find it interesting. I think he's very articulate and that kind of even camouflages it further. So you have also been in cognitive science and we have thought about this and we've experimented. And so maybe you can actually, actually say something. And then I can say something is why do you, Alex, think that in all these states, which we have first tried to clarify that it's not just the anesthesia and NDE. It is distraction and deep sleep as well. So why, why do you think that awareness is there? Why is the awareness there? I don't know. I mean, wh why is it that when we listen to someone speak that we know and understand and care about, that we, without even words, we can tell something's wrong or we can tell how they're feeling precisely or, you know, like some things here, there's just a, a rich subtlety of detail that's unspoken. And I, I believe that's where it all begins. And and I think uh, it's easy to deny subtlety when you're very strong intellectually and your whole world is founded on science and data. And it's very easy to ignore subtlety. And but why does why do we have awareness in the first place? No, 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 not, no, sorry, not that why do we have awareness in the first place. I was just saying that you and I have seemed to take in a position that awareness is there when we go to sleep, when we take anesthesia or where you choose, or you're distracted. You have taken clearly taken a position which is different than Sam Harris, more along the lines of Rupert Spira. And so I just wanted to kind of go for each of us why that is the case. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's been the rich subtlety and the connections and the richness in listening to your heart and following the openness, following the signs and the feeling, the feeling um, and discovering that it's rewarding and it has a lot to offer. And if you listen, it speaks. And denying that, in my experience, has 
led to hardship and difficulty and all kinds of things going wrong. It's kind of just been through my own personal folly that I've really attuned to the subtlety and listened to the inner voice within and have been guided by something other than my thoughts. And to me, that my personal experience is that's what ultimately informs me. It's not the ideas that other people have given me or the things I've read or videos I've seen or it's my experience. And and to me it's it's hard to explain. It's it's I can't I just can't deny my own experience. I mean I, I just even if it disagrees with other people, I came to that dead end in the past and I had to come face to face with all of it. And yeah, for that, I'm grateful because I, I feel like it's opened up door, unthinkable doors, impossible doors have opened since that point. Not that I wish the experience on anybody else. It, uh, it was a very hard one, but yeah. No, this is very beautiful. And I think, as you said, there is subtlety and we communicate a lot of things and, uh, you saw something and you did actually see it and that was verified within you and you do not, it seems wrong to dismiss it. Yes. So to say that consciousness or awareness is not primary, it would be to miss what you were shown. Right. And it would be completely nihilistic. I mean, it's hard to imagine what is this life about? Is it just like to believe nothing matters and um, drink yourself into a stupor every night and I don't know, care, don't care about your health or what matters if, if your experience isn't primary. I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's just completely disempowering. Yeah, no, this is, this is great talking. I feel like we touched on a lot of topics that we could probably keep talking for hours about. It was fitting that you are the first guest. Thank you for the honor and the pleasure. And oh, yeah, no, the honor is mine. Thank you. And thank you, everybody who is going to tune in.